Good morning. And our study now will be dealing in the area of angels. Angels, I've entitled it Angels, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So it is a study of angelology. Theologically, that's the word that is often used. It's a broad topic. There's a lot that can be examined, and it's going to take some time to cover the areas that are needed for our topic and and our study this morning. It's really too broad to cover in a single hour's lesson. It would probably take a a number of Bible lessons to really do justice to the topic. So we're going to try to look at in a few areas that are rather focused and a little bit more narrow than rather covering everything. But we do need some introductory comments, so let's get started, all right? As an introduction, we probably ought to start with just something of a a working definition that is biblical regarding what is an angel. Now, if you do a word study on the word angel in in Hebrew and and the same study in Greek, you essentially come up with the same uh, word. Essentially, the word angel means messenger. It is some sort of a divine messenger. But that doesn't tell you an awful lot. There are many, many passages in Scripture that give us clues and indicators about what the angelic world is like. They, we get some indication of their capabilities. We get indications of even what they may look like. We get indications of how they function, how they interact with man. And so there's just a lot of clues. Essentially, though... As we consider what is an angel, essentially we, just, we understand that an angel is a spiritual being that, is, that was created before man and that has superhuman abilities. Now when I say superhuman abilities, I'm not thinking like Superman and Batman or things of this nature. We're not delving into the Marvel comic books. But they have abilities and gifts that human beings do not possess. Now, your outline that I've prepared for you might be helpful to you. We don't have time to look at all of the Bible passages that appear on this outline. But we'll look at some of them. Now, in Psalm chapter 8, verse 5, we discover that man was created a little lower than the angels. That means the angel kind are one step above us. In Job chapter 38, verse 7, it will tell us that... The morning stars and the sons of God shouted for joy when the earth was created. So from this and other clues in scripture, we perceive quite readily and obviously that angel kind was created prior to mankind. And when Adam was formed from the dust of the earth, angels were pleased and rejoiced. Now, our first point, what is the biblical evidence for angels? There is an array, a vast array of biblical evidence for angels. And I've given five passages, but I could probably give you 25 passages and, and, and we could just carry on and on in terms of the biblical evidence for angels. Of those five, I'd like to call your attention though to two of them. Just two. I'm just selecting two and we'll touch on each of these briefly. Turn with me to Genesis 19. It's a well-known story. I believe many of you will recall the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) You will also recall that there were two angels sent to rescue Lot and his family. 
So let me read two verses out of this chapter that give us a remind us of what you maybe perhaps already knew, that angels are really unique. Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, it says, There came two angels to Sodom at evening. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. <clears throat> now, we won't read all that happens next about how Lot invited them to his home, and the home was surrounded by aggressive sinners and Sodomites. But if you drop down to verse number 11, it turns out that Lot needed rescued. And the rescue was effected by these two angels. And it says <clears throat> that they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. So we see here that angels are messengers of God. They are sent to perform certain functions. And in this case, they had special abilities. What you and I would think was somewhat, shall we say, miraculous beyond human ability. Let's go to another passage. Let's go to the New Testament. There's a, a lovely story in the book of Acts, chapter number 12, that give us another indicator of the functions that angels can and sometimes will perform. Now, this is the story of Peter. In the New Testament church, it turns out that not everybody was all that pleased with the growth of the New Testament church. And we find that Peter landed in jail. And if we break into the story at verse 5, we'll perceive a little bit about, again, about the, the gifts and the talents of angels. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Let me read for you a few verses. Follow along, please. I'm in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side, raised him up, and saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. And when they were past the first and second ward, they came into the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. All right, so here we have the rescue of Peter. And as you read the text, if you read it a couple of times very closely, you'll see that Peter was under extraordinary guard, chained to two soldiers behind several uh, wards or gates that were no doubt locked that they had to pass through. Well, the angel made it all simple and the angel got all the way into the, the interior portions into the belly of the prison and led Peter out. And when Peter was free on the street, the angel disappeared. So again, we see uh, uh, one of many, many verses in the Bible that tell us about the existence of angels and their extraordinary capabilities that is, at any rate, compared to you and I. Now, 
the second one. Let's go to our second point. The question can be posed, do disobedient angels exist? Do sinful angels exist? Do wicked angels exist? Now we have a plethora of passages dealing with angels that are good and noble and pure and obedient unto God and helpful to man and to believers. But what about disobedient, wicked angels? Well, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And it turns out there are two groups. There are two groups of wicked angels. When I say two groups, I mean, this is what I mean. It means those that are presently restrained or imprisoned and those that are at liberty. Those that are restrained and those that are at liberty. Now, 2 Peter 2.4. We need to look at the three passages that are listed there in your outline. Because they are rather important. 2 Peter 2 and verse number 4. that go? Yeah, 2 Peter 2.4. Now, this passage is in the context of the author, Peter, reminding folks that there will be judgment to those that do wicked things. And he gives a couple of illustrations about judgment that will come upon those who do wicked things. He mentions the sinful world of the flood. He mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. They were judged. But he mentions something else in verse 4. As examples of judgment that comes upon those who are disobedient to God, he mentions angels. Second Peter 2.4, he says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment... Then he goes on to cite another example or two of those who have sinned and been wicked. You'll see now that from this verse, we discover that there were indeed angels that sinned. This verse does not tell them what the sin was, when it occurred, doesn't tell us anything. But it does tell us that they sinned, and it does tell us that they are restrained in some sort of confined darkness and they will be judged. Now, a second verse is found in Jude. If you go to the very short book of Jude, right before Revelation, and look at verses 6 and 7, Jude also speaks of this group of people. Well, rather not people, group of angels. These angels. Jude, beginning at verse number 6. It says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved... In everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Again, angels sinned, they're going to be judged, and they are presently restrained in some sort of a, a prison, shall we say. And in verse 7, it compares now the sin of these angels. This verse gives us a slight clue of what the sin, the sin of these angels. It says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities round about them, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So it compares the sin of the angels to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Hmm, that's rather interesting. But I have to stop there. I don't have time to go down this road and explore the sin of the angels. It's very fascinating. 
very interesting, and, and it can be somewhat important. But we don't have time today for that. So let's proceed quickly to a third verse that reminds us that there are indeed uh, angels that have sinned. And if we go to Job chapter 4, we have a brief statement in verse number 18. But let me read beginning at 17, because Job, as these gentlemen are discussing things and philosophizing and going back and forth, will find that God is... God does not trust man. And in arguing that he can't trust man, he makes a passing comment that he couldn't even trust angels. If I can't trust angels, why would I trust man? Man is surely less trustworthy than angels. Verse 17 of Job 4. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. Folly is fault, fault, sin, mistake, error. This doesn't tell us much about the folly of angels, merely that angels, some angels committed some sort of sin, folly, error, mistake. Now, so we, do, we have three passages here that tell us that disobedient angels do exist, have existed. Now, that might seem a little odd and counterintuitive to some people. Some people tend to assume that angels, by their nature, are incapable of doing anything bad or sinful or iniquitous. That they're incapable of error. But if you reflect on that and you think about what an angel is and the capacity that angels have, their vast and great intelligence, not, they're not... They're not uh, omniscient, they, they're, they're, their intelligence is nothing compared to Jehovah. Nothing. But compared to you and I, they, they've got a leg up on us for sure. A big one. But if we think about that, and we think about the fact that angels are thoughtful, sentient, sentient, that's the right word, sentient. It means you can think, you can rationalize, you can process information. You're not like a, a caterpillar that just functions on instinct alone. And you're not like a, like a, 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 oh, I don't know, a snake or, or a lizard that doesn't really think. It just, it just, it just exists in accordance with its internal, uh, internal instincts. That's how it exists and its functions. So they're not like... They're, they're, not, they're not a low form of, 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 of creation. They're a high form of creation, higher than you and I. And if you and I can think and rationalize and process information, so can angels. Now, an element of that, and this is a bit of a, its own philosophical deep water that we could dive off into, but we will not. You'll just have to kind of trust me on this, I guess, if you think you can trust me. We have this. All sentient beings, that is, all thinking creatures, that's you and I, and angel kind, begin their existence with a measure of free will. Adam and Eve began in the Garden of Eden with a measure of free will, a great deal of free will. Now, angels can sin because they have choice. They have choice. You have choice because you can think. If you have no choice... You do not think. If you cannot choose between an apple or a banana for breakfast, 
You have no thinking. You have no choice. You are merely responding to the programming that was placed in you by someone, by your creator. Free will choice is necessary for real thinking sentient creatures. And angels are sentient creatures with re real free will choice. That is what they are. Now, we could go down a long discussion about how Adam and Eve, after the fall, have lost some of that free will. We can still choose between an apple and a banana for breakfast. But you and I do not have freedom of the will to reach out to, sa- to grapple, grab a hold of salvation and eternal life. And don't, don't think of, by the way, on this business, don't think of free will as an all or nothing sort of thing. If, if, if our brother Nathan was in jail, he would have limited free will. He couldn't get up and leave and go shopping. But he could choose to sleep or read or stare at the wall or twiddle his thumbs or chat with another neighbor. He still has some elements of free will. So, so anyway, I'll, I, I must stop on that. I'll... I'll I'll get bogged down if we go into this philosophical discussion. Let's move on quickly, but just understand that angels can sin. Angels have sinned, and they do so because in the beginning God gave them choice. They are not automatons, and they had choice. And that choice is an enormous gift of God. It's a tremendous gift. All right, now, so, so far in our discussion, good angels exist. Disobedient angels exist. Wicked, sinful, disobedient angels exist. Some of them are restrained and confined. But not all of them are restrained and confined. And I can't give you all the answers you might like as to why some are confined and some are not. That I can't clarify. I can only tell you what we know from Scripture, and I don't want to speculate too much as to the whys. I can only tell you that some are confined and some are not. Now, that is among the wicked angels. Now, the next question. Of this body of wicked, disobedient angels, and we're really now concerned with those that are no longer, that that are not confined. Those that are free, that are at liberty still, despite the fact that they are disobedient, wicked, and sinful. Do the disobedient, wicked, and sinful angels have a leader? And the answer is most definitely yes. There is one among them that is more prominent than the others. There is one among them. Now this leader is typically simply called the devil. He exerts influence over other angels that disobeyed. Now I don't know if his influence is because they fear him. I don't know if his influence is because they find him charismatic. I don't know if the influence over the other angels is because they think he's clever. I can't say for sure why he has influence over them, but he does lead other disobedient, fallen, wicked angels. They recognize his leadership and they follow him. Now, let me give you two brief passages. We'll touch on them, but these are important to understand that this is a valid and biblical idea. Revelation chapter 12, you might recognize this verse. This passage, I'll read verses 7 through 9. It describes war in heaven. Now, there is a little bit of a theological debate as to whether this war in heaven is in the past or whether it is in the future. 
That I will not try to answer for you right now. But it doesn't really matter for the point that we're making. Because that's another long discussion. Let's go to Revelation 12. And let me read for you 7 through 9. It says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels. Now you immediately perceive that the two armies each have a leader. Michael and the dragon. Verse 8. And prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. Verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now you'll notice the possessive phraseology. The devil and his angels. The devil and his angels. His angels. His followers. His supporters. His army. And we have a whole series of synonyms in verse 9 that really is very useful. Because it tells us that the, this, 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 this leader of these wicked angels has a number of names. Titles, the great dragon, the dragon, the old serpent, the devil, Satan. That's, that's pretty useful. That really clarifies a lot of things right there. That, that just lets us spring out in many different directions. But if that's not persuasive to you that the, uh, the, the devil, let's go to the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter number 25, you will find in verse 41 that Jesus has these words. Now, this is referring to Judgment Day. Now, this is future. This has not occurred. On Judgment Day, we discover this. He says, Then shall he say also unto them on his left hand. Here's Judgment Day. Words of Jesus. Depart from me, ye cursed. So I hope that you're not going to be a part of this group that's cursed. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, we have a possessive statement, the devil and his angels. So we have, these two verses are enough right here to tell us that the devil exists. He is a leader of these fallen angels that are at liberty, and they have things that they're doing. Now, what else can we say about this leader? All right, we understand that while some of the wicked angels of, of, are confined, certainly this personality, this great fallen angel, if I may use that term, fallen angel, this great sinful disobedient angel, the devil we'll call him, he is not. Now the Bible has clear indicators that he is active and dangerous. He is active and dangerous. Now, there's a very well-known passage in 1 Peter chapter 5 that's worth reading for you. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. We're all given this exhortation to watch out. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And we understand that the devouring... Is, is a metaphor. But that does not make the entire passage a metaphor. 
It does not make the entire passage imaginary. It is very real, and the language tells us that he is active and he is dangerous. The, uh, another passage to understand the activity and the nature of the activity, Matthew 13. If you turn to Matthew 13, you may recall and recognize a parable that Jesus told. It begins in verse 24. It's the parable of the field. All right? We have a field, and we have good seed, and we have the tares, or the bad seed. And if you go down to the end of the parable, the end of the story, we can discover something about the activity of this sinful angel. Because Jesus describes what the parable means. So if we break into verse 37 of Matthew 13, Jesus answered and said to them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. Boy, we could spend a lot of time on that too. There is so much, there are so many threads and, 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 and directions we could go in this study, but I can't cover them all. So I have to continue. The point I would like to draw your attention to is found in verse 39. It says, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. So the devil is active. He is dangerous. And we are warned to be cautious. Now, there, we've got to shift gears slightly. There is a school of thought that likes to argue and suggest that the, that the devil actually doesn't exist. There is no, there is no devil, there is no uh, personality called the devil or Satan or, or any other appellation. All that, that this, 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 this individual, this personality does not exist. There is no fallen angel known as the devil. By extension... This logic, then they have to, would have to argue, well, there's, there's no fallen angels. There are no wicked angels out there. Uh, some would go further and say, well, there actually are no angels, and there are no evil spirits. And essentially, they would deny the spirit world. All right, let's just, con let's just consider a couple of these arguments. From time to time, you will probably run across someone who will tell you, hey, I, I think the devil doesn't exist. I think Satan doesn't exist. I think that's just, just a... That's a holdover from the, you know, medieval worldview, Dante's Inferno, and all that kind of medieval stuff. That's just not true, they, they will argue. The Bible doesn't support the idea of the existence of, of a fallen angel known as the devil or Satan. Now that, unfortunately, is, has grown among some of the, of the kingdom circles, and you may have met someone who advocates this. I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about that because it's a, it's a false teaching. It's a false biblical teaching. It is incorrect. And I believe that an honest reading of Scripture makes it insupportable to argue along those lines. So one of the arguments that's sometimes raised is the word Satan. The word Satan, they'll say, means human adversary. A human adversary. And so when you run into the word Satan in the Bible... This is really some sort of a, a human being. It's, 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 a, it's, an, it's, a, it's someone who's been irritating you. It's your adversary, Bill Smith. You could call that Bill Smith. For you, he is Satan. He's your adversary. He's your human adversary. 
Does the word Satan, if you do a word study out, does it mean human adversary? Well, the answer is really not, not really. It's based on a false premise. The word Satan, if you do study it out, will take you in to a, a cognate from the Hebrew language, from the Chaldean language, which is Satanus, and it does mean adversary. But it doesn't mean human adversary. It just means an adversary. So when you say, well, it's, it's, it's a human adversary, it's not a spiritual adversary, it's not a spiritual being, that is where they're really not being honest in terms of biblical exegesis. So Satan, although it means adversary, but it has no distinction that makes him human or demands that he be human. And so whenever you run across the word Satan, you should not assume, oh, this is some kind of human. Now, one of the reasons they raise this argument is because there is a well-known story in the Bible. And I say story, I mean a true story, a well-known historic discussion that occurs in the book of Job. Now, if you go to the book of Job and you read the first couple of chapters, and many of you will know the story of Job, don't you? So turn with me for a few moments and just we'll glance briefly at the book of Job. If you go there, you'll discover that there's a dialogue between God and Satan. And in order to put forth the idea that Satan is not a spiritual being, they want to try to do something with the text here in these first two chapters to humanize Satan and, in a sense, bring the existence of this discussion, to bring this whole thing down to earth. So what they're really doing, the argument that Satan means human adversary, which is not correct, but that argument is raised to evade the first two chapters of Job. And the no-devil advocates want God to be earthbound so that Satan is a mere human. And they're going to suggest this entire discussion in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 did not occur in heaven, but happened somewhere here on earth. Let me read for you a few verses out of Job. You'll probably recognize them. I'm going to start in Job 1, verse 6. Now, I trust and pray that you remember your Bible stories and that you generally are familiar with the story of Job and his various afflictions and how it all ended. But let's look at the beginning. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God, and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land." But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself. Put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. So the no-devil advocates would like to suggest that all of this entire discussion occurred somewhere here on earth, not in the heavenly realms. Um... That, that may not be the most important point, but I think by intuitively we can perceive that this was occurring in heavenly realms. And there's a lot to discuss in this passage, dealing with who the sons of God are and how we know that to be true. But again, 
That's outside the purview of our discussion for the moment. For the moment, what we want to perceive is something that's rather significant. We'll notice that God withdrew his protection from Job and essentially said to Satan, do what you want. You're free to do as you like to Job. He withdrew his protection, the hedge of protection. And the Lord said in verse 12, All that he hath is in thy power. Now you'll notice, if we drop down in the story, a series of tragedies suddenly unfolded in Job's life. People attacked him, windstorms, all kinds of terrible things occurred. Notice verse 19. A great wind from the wilderness came. Hmm, that's interesting. A great wind from the wilderness that caused the house to fall down and kill all of his children. You remember that story. Huh, that's interesting. Huh. Now, if we drop down to chapter 2, we won't read all of chapter 2, but again, there was another discussion very much like the one we just read. Turns out that Job didn't curse God. Job passed this test. He did not curse God the way Satan said he would. So Satan reappears and says, well, been looking around here. Um, let me have a little more free reign. Let me have a little more. Let me have another crack at the bat here. Let me try again. And we discover that God withdraws his protection yet a little further from Job. Now... Satan is allowed to afflict Job in his body. God says, you can do anything you want, including his body. Just don't kill him. And we have in this interesting verse, verse 7, Job 2, verse 7, it says, So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord. He sallies forth now, going after Job. And it says, Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot into his crown. Satan afflicted him with boils. God gave him permission. It's interesting now. Can I ask you a question? Can a single human, you, me, anyone, even George Soros, or Bill Gates, or the mastermind of the Wuhan, do they have the ability to stimulate calamities such as windstorms and diseases in the manner that is described here? And the answer is no, they cannot. When the Bible warns us that Satan is dangerous, he is dangerous. But notice, so we can say this adversary is not a human adversary. Satan appears to be able Yes, to afflict someone with an ailment and to stimulate a windstorm in a destructive manner. That is, with this caveat, with the caveat, when God permits, you see. When God permits. Now, let's go to the other side. We've got to move quickly. I see the time is moving quick. Let's shift gears and go to the New Testament. <clears throat> There's much that could be discussed regarding the word devil, the name devil, or the title devil, or, or just looking at that word. There's a lot that we could. Those that suggest that the devil is not real 
are going to make an argument that the word devil is an idiom. It's an idiom for strong desires. That seems like a little odd argument to make, but that's the make argument that is sometimes made. Now, they have to do something pretty dramatic because there's a passage in the New Testament that is really hard for them to work their way around. So let's look at that. Is the word devil an idiom for strong desires? The answer is no. Now, this argument is raised to evade the story of the devil tempting Jesus. Turn with me, please, to Matthew 4. We need to spend a few minutes in Matthew 4. This is a, an important passage to understand angels, fallen angels, the devil, and some of the risks involved. So the no devil advocates will argue something along these lines. They're going to say that, that Jesus being tempted in the wilderness now, he fasts for 40 days, the devil appears. They're going to make an argument. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me not tell you what their argument is until you read the passage. Is everybody in Matthew 4? I hope you are, because we need to read this together. This is a very important passage. Can I ask the whole congregation to open up to Matthew 4, and we're going to read 1 through 11 together. Are you ready? Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It's an important passage, and it's a beautiful passage. It's a wonderful story. Let's read Matthew 4, 1 through 11 together. Are you ready? Let's go. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, If thou by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, Cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thou hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now, <clears throat> there's many things we can draw from this. A few quick observations. You'll notice that the word devil and Satan are referring to the same personality. And so is the word tempter in verse number 3. Now, this story is, is what we call narrative. It, 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 it's, it's a record. It's, it, it's a history. It's a narrative. It is telling something that happened. It is not a parable. It is not an allegory. It is, it is not a fable. It is a story, a narrative. It is as if you are reading a history book. And that's what this is. Much of the Bible is a history book. And that's what's occurring here. Now, those that say, well, the devil really doesn't exist, they're going to say that Jesus is talking to himself. 
That's what they're, they're kind of compelled to run in a direction like that. And they may try to phrase it slightly different, but that is exactly what they have, to, they have to argue here. Because you can see that this narrative is a dialogue between two people having a conversation. We have two people in a conversation, a dialogue. And if the devil doesn't exist, who is Jesus talking to? Well, they argue he was, in a sense, talking to himself and is thus struggling with his own strong desires. He's struggling with his own strong desires. He's struggling to keep himself from eating when he has decided he wouldn't because he decided he'd fast 40 days and, and the fast isn't quite over yet and, oh, I really want something to eat. I mean, you and I would struggle. I, I mean, I'd cave in on day three or four most likely. But they're arguing that Jesus is struggling within himself, talking to himself. And he's having this struggle. Shall I turn the stones into bread? Oh, no, shall I not? Oh, I guess I shouldn't. Shall, should I, shouldn't I? Should I, shouldn't I? That's essentially where they go. Um, now, I'm, I'm not arguing that, they're, that, 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 that folks that make that argument are, are really trying to tear Jesus down. I don't necessarily think they really are. I'm not here to question anybody's motives. But essentially, they do. They are. Because what they really are doing is they're, they're setting up the kind of struggle within Jesus that, that, that is distinctly part of a fallen nature type struggle that I believe is not correct. Now, that's only the first temptation. They also have to then make some kind of an argument and make some sort of a... that Jesus is struggling about whether or not he should throw himself off the tower of the temple. Should I commit suicide? Should I leap out there and let the angels catch me? Or should I just stay here? And then they have to make some kind of an argument. Shall I proclaim myself king of the earth? Or shall I not? Shall I do it? Shall I not? So they really are making the kind of argument that destroys the whole story. It tears the narrative down. It makes it, in my opinion, completely nonsensical unreasonable, irrational, foolish. None of it's really plausible because we have <laughs> Satan, Lucifer, the devil, and I, I, won't go down to Lucifer, I won't go down the road into Lucifer. That's another area we don't have time for. But the devil and Satan, which are identified by name here in this passage, it makes the whole passage nonsensical. Now, let's go a little further, though. <clears throat> let's go a little further. I'd like to turn, ask you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter number 2. So, I hope I've been able to, to show you that there is a powerful wicked angel known as the devil. And there's something about the devil here in 2 Timothy chapter number 2 that we need to observe. He has his own will and his own intellect. And his strategy is deception. His strategy is deception. Let's begin at verse 24 of 2 Timothy 2. We have an exhortation. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now pay attention, please. Verse 26. That they may recover themselves out 
of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Satan has his own intellect, his own will. He seeks to set a, shall we say, a snare, a trap, a ploy. And he does so, so he can take you captive, so to speak. Again, the, the taking you captive is, to, is, 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 the, is the nature of the deception. To bring you under his power and his influence. The way, perhaps, he has power and influence over other angels. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what kind of hold he may have over the other sinful angels that follow his lead. But he does have some sort of hold over them. Some sort of persuasive hold, perhaps. And he seeks to extend that to you and I. Now, in terms of deception, let me just give you a thought here. Here's a thought. What better deception exists than to persuade your potential victim that you don't exist? What, per, what better deception would exist than to persuade your potential victim you don't exist? That's a wonderful deception. Let me give you a story from history you'll recall. December 7th, 1941. That moment and day, that famous day of infamy, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. How were they able to achieve such a stupendous surprise attack? Well, it is because they successfully made the naval authorities at Pearl Harbor think that they weren't anywhere nearby. And the, it turns out they were only about 200 miles. An entire aircraft battle fleet, Japanese battle fleet, was only 200 miles away from Pearl Harbor. But through deception, it was believed that they weren't there. They weren't there. They didn't exist. They existed, oh, 3,000 miles away on the far side of the Pacific, over by the Philippine Islands, perhaps. But they weren't anywhere near Hawaii and Pearl Harbor. What better deception exists than to persuade your victim that you're not there? I think it's rather clever and dangerous. Now, let's shift gears. We don't have a lot of time left. Um, real quick, though, an extension of this entire logic and this entire discussion takes us into evil spirits. So the question could be asked, do evil spirits exist? Well, the Bible, I believe, builds a case that is really simple and really clear and really obvious and really pretty much overwhelming that evil spirits do exist. I don't have time to discuss the origin of evil spirits, but let's just comment briefly on their existence. Now, those that are essentially, shall we say, materialistic in their worldview and will say, hey, look, the devil doesn't exist, wicked angels don't exist, sinful angels don't exist. By extension, they're pretty much compelled to say evil spirits don't exist. By, for the sake of consistency, they have to say there's no such thing as evil spirits, there's no such thing as fallen angels, sinful angels, no such thing as a devil, and they may not even believe in good angels. Essentially, they take the spirit world and say, it's not there. The only world that exists and matters is this tangible world 
of you and I here in the flesh and in, and, and that which we can touch and feel and taste and so forth. It's a materialist worldview. Now, do evil spirits exist? The answer is yes. Now, those that say they don't, they try to make an argument. It's a hard one to make, and I'm not sure why they cling to it. But here's how it goes. They're going to assert that evil spirits, and remember, there's many examples in the New Testament of, of Jesus and the disciples casting out evil spirits, aren't there? Can you think of an example in the Bible, in the New Testament, of evil spirits being cast out? Raise your hand if you can. Well, sure you can. You can probably think of a half a dozen without too much trouble. So how do they explain that? Well, they're going to say, hey, look, they're going to say the evil spirit is actually a physical infirmity. And no evil spirit actually exists. And when an evil spirit is cast out, this is actually a healing. It's actually a healing, not an evil spirit. All right? So they're going to say, well, when Jesus made the blind man see, okay, that was a physical ailment. But when there is a casting out of an evil spirit, that was really the lifting of some sort of a physical affliction. You know, can't walk or whatever. Not an evil spirit. There was no evil spirit. Now, I, I have no idea how they really are comfortable with the idea that the, the, all the wording in the stories in the New Testament talk about demons and devils and evil spirits and how they can get around all that and are comfortable and just pull, you know, kind of taking the wording of the New Testament and just picking it apart and throwing things away. I'm not sure how they're comfortable with that, but evidently so many are. But let me just quickly say this. In terms of, of this thought that casting out a demon is really a healing and has no, there is, there is, there never was any demon there. That's biblically impossible. At least we can prove that. Because there, there, are, there are evil spirits that don't involve a physical ailment, but some other function entirely. Let me give you a story. Turn with me in Acts. I think we've got time for this. To Acts chapter 16. There's an interesting story in Acts chapter 16 about an evil spirit that has nothing to do with a an ailment, a disease, or being crippled, or can't talk, or, or, or anything like that. In fact, it seems to be kind of the opposite. Acts chapter 16. Now, we're going to break into verse 16. And this is a story of Paul and a couple of fellows and a young lady that they, he runs across. <clears throat> Many are not familiar with this story, but it's interesting. Read with me, if we would, please. I'm in Acts 16. I'm going to start at verse number 16. Let's look at this as we consider for a few moments evil spirits. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. Well, let's pause. Soothsaying is being able to predict the future. Divination, that means predicting the future. All right, so here's a damsel, there is a spirit, the spirit gives her the ability to, well actually the evil spirit and I presume using her voice, using her words, allows her to predict the future, or at least makes people think that they're predicting the future. 
Perhaps it's a deception, a complete deception. That really is what I would probably say. But let's continue with the story. So, here's our damsel. And the same, that is, this, this damsel, verse 17, the same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show us unto the way of salvation. And this she did many days. Now, that's a little odd. You might say, why would an evil spirit identify Paul as being the teacher of a good and excellent gospel? Well, I don't have the answer to that question. Or could it be that this was the woman herself with her own voice and the evil spirit wasn't speaking? I don't know. I don't know, but that's not the point. I can't answer all the questions that can be raised by this passage. But we can glean some information from it. It's an interesting story, isn't it? So this she did many days. But Paul, now I'm in verse 18, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Well, that's good. That's great. Now, let's hear, look at the response. When her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, drew them into the marketplace under the rulers. So, evidently, the girl was a slave. And the owners were angry that their money-making slave couldn't perform her tricks anymore. You get the idea here? Verse 20, And brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. They didn't really address the exact issue at hand. But nonetheless, they wanted to get rid of Paul and Silas. And it says, if you keep reading, you discover that, that Paul and Silas got, got into trouble and they ended up landing in jail. Well, that's not the point of our story. The point of our story is this. This is an interesting evil spirit. This is an evil spirit that did not harm the girl whatsoever. In fact, it seemed like it, from a very human point of view... It's almost as if it improved her. It may gave her capabilities that in the eyes of other people made her more valuable, not less valuable. It's a very interesting story. The point of it is this. Evil spirits can do many different things. And you can't simply argue, well, an evil spirit is some sort of a code word for a physical ailment. There's no physical ailment with this young lady. She had no harm done to her body in any way. Furthermore, let's look at one final passage regarding evil spirits. Go to Mark chapter 9. With the last couple of minutes, let's look at Mark chapter 9 regarding the existence of evil spirits. Mark chapter 9. Now here again we have a story. And there's a man that comes to Jesus and he says, uh, Jesus, I've, I, have a, I, have, I have a son who's afflicted. And there is some sort of a, an evil spirit of some nature, some sort of a, something's going on here, and it caused him to harm himself. It caused him to, you know, fall down and foam and, you know, do all kinds of things. And 
the, the disciples, the disciples were not able to cast this evil spirit out. But Jesus does. So let's break into the story at verse 24. Now let's go to 25. We've got to move quickly here. Mark 9, verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. Well, some might argue, well, there it is. He was just, Jesus just healed, him, healed the child of a physical affliction. He didn't really cast out anything. There was nothing to cast out. Jesus just healed the boy of his physical affliction. But that really doesn't do honor to the text. Verse 26. The spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He's dead. <laughs> but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now pay attention. And when he was coming to the house, the disciples asked him privately, saying, Why could we not cast him out? Now Jesus had a great opportunity, if evil spirits didn't exist, to tell the disciples that evil spirits don't exist. He could have said something like, well, you didn't cast the evil spirit out because there are no such thing as evil spirits. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, in verse 29, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Jesus here in this passage had a wonderful opportunity to teach his disciples that evil spirits really didn't exist. That's just some mythical nonsense made up by, oh, you know, the Pharisees or whoever. But instead, he gave them advice about how to be more effective in casting them out. Instead of saying that they don't exist, he said, hey, they exist. <laughs> And some of them are difficult to cast out. And here's how you can be more effective in this area of spiritual warfare. Now, we've come to the end of our time, really. In the last couple of moments, though, as we draw some conclusions, we've had a quick look here at angel kind, good angels, wicked or sinful angels, the devil and evil spirits. Now, it's not my intention for you to leave here fearful. So I, I'm asking you, don't be fearful, but be wise. So I'm going to give you a few quick pointers to keep evil spirits and devils and demons far from your life. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that we need to walk around thinking, well, gee, the world's full of evil spirits, and so whoop, whoop, whoosh, there went one right there. <laughs> just like they're all over the place and that's not the case at all the devil's a fallen angel he's a sinful angel he's, he's, he's far smarter than you and I but he's, he is not omnipresent he is not omniscient <laughs> he has, his capabilities are, are nothing compared to Jehovah and to Jesus Christ Amen. and the same with any other evil fallen angel or any evil spirit but there are a few safeguards 
you can cultivate in your life. So let's just run through these real quick. A few thoughts come to mind. Number one, to keep devil and evil spirits far from your life. Number one, build the habits of a moral lifestyle. Build the habits of a moral lifestyle. Traditional morality, as was once commonly understood in this land. Number two, live in humility, forgiving daily. This is not easy. Live in humility, forgiving daily. Number three, read your Bible daily, sometimes aloud. Out loud. Read it out loud. They do not like the Word of God. Fill your home and your room with the Word of God, and they will run. If they're anywhere nearby, they're not going to hang around. Number four, avoid the music of the world. Avoid the music of the world. Seek high-quality, high-culture music. Seek high-culture, quality music. Avoid the music of the world. Next, avoid all mood-altering substances. Mood-altering substances. And finally, gather for worship regularly, routinely. Gather for worship routinely, regularly. And I believe that this is a formula to keep all the evil spirits and devils and demons out of your life, out of your house, away from your family. So God bless you, and thank you so much for your time today.